lingering around the table and the conversation that comes from lingering. And for me, music really sets a tone. So in my iTunes, I have two different dinner party play play mixes so that I can choose which dinner party music I'm going to go for. I get excited for the food because the food at a dinner party is not that little side dish that's going to go along with the pizza that's in the oven on a Thursday night. No, the dinner party are these entrees like roasted broccoli and Brussels sprouts with Brussels sprouts with prosciutto in them or it's the the garlic and cheddar mashed potatoes or it's this fresh rosemary bread with the butter that's already been sitting out so it's soft and easy to spread on the bread oh yeah I hear those mm, it just sounds delicious right that makes for such a good dinner party and I love it I love it when the hosts notice that my drink is almost gone and they go and they fill up my drink without me even asking you know and they, they just want to make you feel welcome the touches that are made to make someone feel welcome they really goes that extra mile in helping the guest to feel invited the guest to feel served, and the guest to feel loved. In the passage that Lynette read for us, Jesus is attending a grand dinner party with some of his best friends. So we know that Mary is there, Martha, Lazarus, the disciples. They're all there, and it's a special dinner, and it was most likely in preparation for the Passover. So we are coming right up. It's almost Passion Week that's happening in this timeline in the Bible. So Passion Week's about to happen. And during this time, the Jewish families come together to celebrate in these big dinners. So this was a formal dinner because we are told that they are reclining at the table. This is literally where they're laying around the table. And they leave one side of the table open so the people that are serving can go in and they can serve you the food or they can pour more drinks. And they lay down on their left side and they put their hand under their head like this. And then they eat with their right hand. And then your feet, you have to be tricky with your feet of how you lay down. So your feet kind of go behind the person next to you. So the feet are kind of hanging out. The table's low on one side um, is where the serving happens. Now, Martha, Martha was being the Martha Stewart of the story. You see, Martha wanted to be the hostess with the mostess. She's serving. She's making things look lovely. She's making sure the food is hot. Martha is being Martha Stewart. That's how I remember Martha and Mary. She was showing this amazing hospitality. But Mary... Mary had other plans. You see, she was ready to show radical hospitality. Hospitality that wasn't normal. It wasn't always comfortable. And it was hospitality that maybe almost brought a shock of surge of shock to other people that were in attendance. Now, for a moment... Before we go on right there, let's think about Mary's situation. Now, Mary, her brother is Lazarus, and Lazarus had just died. Probably, if I were to guess, within the previous week or two. And so he had died, and he was even in the tomb for four days, like dead in the tomb. 
And it was then that Jesus had come, after those four days of Lazarus being dead in the tomb, that Jesus came to be with, with Martha and with Mary in their distress and to mourn with them. And John chapter 11, which is a chapter right before this passage, John shares that the story of Lazarus' death, that it is clear that Mary is the one that is the most emotional. She's the one that is weeping. She can't keep it together. Mary is the one that, when Jesus comes, Mary's the one that goes, Lord, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. She is so emotional in this and so wrapped up. And it was after Mary's lament, it says that Jesus too was filled with emotion. And Jesus also wept for his friend. Jesus had just shared also then that he, Jesus, was the resurrection and the life. And if you believed in him, meaning you believe in Jesus, you will live even though you die. You see, at this point, Mary and Martha, they didn't realize this huge importance of Jesus saying during that time of Lazarus, hey, believe in me. And that when Jesus was talking of this resurrection, that he was pointing towards the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Because at that point, Lazarus hadn't risen yet. And he was also more miraculously hinting in the fact that he, too, was one day going to rise from the dead. Now, Jesus was sharing, and if, he said, if you believe in me, you, too, will never stay dead forever. After this exchange, Lazarus is raised from the dead. And the raising of Lazarus, it was the raising of Lazarus that really was the straw that broke the camel's back for the bad guys. Now, the bad guys, these are the Jews, these are the Pharisees, these are the people that made up the Sanhedrin. And these bad guys, they're the ones, after they saw that Lazarus got raised from the dead, they literally said, if you read in in John 11, it says, what are we doing about the fact that this man is doing so many signs and wonders? If we let him keep up with this, everyone's going to start believing in him. So, My guess is that like any town, like Stockton, whatever, that where they were, it was a small enough town that people kind of heard the rumors that were going around. And people kind of had the feel of what was happening around. And I'm pretty sure that it was known that there was this group of people that really didn't like Jesus. They had this plot to kill him. And I'm pretty, I would put money on it that Mary and Martha, they had picked up on this. A few days later, after all of that had happened with Lazarus, after they had that plot to say, we can't let Jesus keep going on with this. A few days later, that's this dinner party. The dinner party where this was happening. So here's Mary at this dinner party. And she's reflecting on Martha's claims that Martha then said in front of everyone that she does believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the God, the coming one into the world. Mary is also thinking about the image of seeing her dead brother come to life again. And Mary's thinking about how many people in town really did not like Jesus and had it out for him. So in response to these emotions, 
Mary wanted to do the most loving, the most welcoming, and the most attentive thing that a hostess could do for Jesus. And she thought of something that was pretty radical. She said, I'm going to take a pound of expensive perfume. I'm going to pour it on the feet of Jesus. Anointing with oil in these days, it was pretty normal. You see, but when you would anoint someone, you wouldn't use a pound of oil. Um, This is about, it's about a cup and a half. And so it's not quite this much. That's a lot, you know, to pour over someone's head. But when you would anoint, you would use just a small little bit. And it would go on the forehead. And it was usually more of the quality of olive oil, not necessarily something that would be really expensive like perfume. And you would never, never use expensive perfume to put on feet. (coughs) You see, feet were dusty and dirty. The feet were not to be touched by other people. The feet were to be cleansed with water, not with oils, not with perfumes. But Mary wanted to show the most utmost respect and honor and her love for her Jesus. So her act of pouring out this perfume, it brought shock and even resentment to the others. Now think about how much fragrance a cup and a half of oil poured out is. This morning I put on two little squirts of perfume and I was like, oh gosh, I overdid it. Two little sprays. That was two little sprays. Here she used a cup and a half of oil. It says that the perfume filled the house. There was no way that you could miss what Mary was doing for her Jesus. Now, Judas, he was so self-centered in this whole thing because he was thinking about the money part of it. And he then was the first to speak up. So if we look at chapter 12, starting at verse 4, this is Judas's response to seeing this perfume being poured out on Jesus. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, ejected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he really cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself as to what was put in that money bag. Leave her alone, Jesus said. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, part of me kind of understands what Judas was doing here. You know, like the whole year's wages spent on just like a little pouring out of a whole bunch of perfume that's worth a lot. So part of me, I'm kind of like, oh gosh, that's a good choice in that money. But the response from Judas is actually the beginning of his betrayal of Jesus. And a further notion that he would rather be a thief and look out for himself than be a servant of the Most High Lord. So Jesus, again, he foreshadows his death right there. And he foreshadows the crucifixion when he tells Jesus Judas to leave Mary alone. Jesus says, he goes, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Jesus wasn't going to die that night, but he did make it known that Mary was literally preparing him for burial. 
that was going to happen a couple days later. Even though she was so unaware of what her divine actions were doing, that her action of pouring this oil perfume on Jesus' feet was part of God's biggest plan ever. She had no idea she was participating in getting Jesus ready for burial. You guys, that's how the Holy Spirit works in each of us. That sometimes the Holy Spirit is going to use each of you in ways for part of God's bigger story that you don't understand. And it doesn't make sense to you at that point. And it might feel weird and awkward. But you got to recognize that it's because of God's glory, his bigger story, that we are called to do that. And that's what Mary was doing. It was Jesus that made it possible for Mary to be seen as honorable and hospitable, even when others thought that she was kind of crazy. I mean, we haven't even gotten to the part of speaking about her using her own hair to then dry and clean the feet of Jesus. How humble, how radical. Yet Jesus portrays her as part of the master plan of God's preparation of Jesus for burial. Now, the the dictionary's definition of hospitality is the reception and the treatment of guests or strangers in a warm, in a friendly, and in a generous way. And hospitality is a trait that many many of us have this instant image of what hospitality is. So it's this image of of like a June cleaver. And so it's this image of, or my grandmother Ruth. My grandmother Ruth was so much like June Cleaver, where, you know, they'd be in there getting the roast out of the oven, wearing an apron and pearls and a little touch of red lipstick. But I want to challenge us to look deeper, that that's not necessarily the only definition of what hospitality is. And it's not only for women. What is Christ calling you to do that is hospitable in a radical way, in a way that might be out of your comfort zone, and it might make you wonder if you're doing it wrong. But in your gut, you know you're not doing it wrong. You know you're doing it right because it's going to bring God glory. You guys, for me, radical hospitality is being a woman in ministry. A female pastor who is ordained to word and service And I still wonder, am I doing this wrong? Like, really? Am I supposed to be a pastor? I'm a woman. I'm a female reverend. Um, I was filling out my thing for United to go on a trip, and you have to put a prefix. And one of my choices, I'm like, I hate putting miss because it says I'm single and I'm not a missus yet. But one of my options is reverend. So a lot of times I put reverend in um, for my air flights. The fact is, I am. I know that many have assumed and said that I'm doing it wrong. And I think about that, and I have to bring it to the Lord. And every single time, I'm reminded that I am called, and I am gifted, and I am worthy to proclaim the word of God to others. And possibly, I'm able to proclaim the word of God to the church in ways that my male colleagues aren't able to do as well. 
My first experience with a female pastor was when I was in high school. And my dad is a senior pastor of a covenant church, and he had an associate pastor. And her name was Pastor Linnea Carnes. And I wasn't quite sure in high school how I felt about this female pastor on staff with my dad. And in my mind, I just was like, oh, she just kind of, you know, does the women's ministries. And um, she helps out with some Bible studies here and there, does the hospital visits. And I wasn't sure, but I look back now. And I also have seen Linnea grow in ministry, and she has actually been a senior pastor in a couple different churches, one of them being in Chicago when I was in seminary um, down the street. And Linnea was one of the many women that were helping to pave the way for women to serve in the church with the gifts that God had designed us with. So what does it mean to be a woman, to be a minister in general of the gospel? Is the answer that the act of preaching and sharing one's faith is it? I would hope not. I think it would be so boring and self-serving if the only point of a pastor is to talk about Jesus and then talk about your own life. It's pretty selfish. No, you see, to be a minister of the gospel, I think that we need to recognize that both verbal proclamation and acts of service or hospitality are given together. To be a minister of the word in both our church settings and in our communities, we need to share about the good news of Jesus Christ. We need to be physically present to care, to listen, to help, and to welcome. Call me crazy, but I believe that Peter had it right in 1 Peter chapter 4. And he said that both men and women received spiritual gifts. When, without any regard to their gender, looking at, oh, female, okay, you get those gifts. Male, okay, you get those gifts. No, no, no. First Peter chapter 4 said that both men and women receive spiritual gifts without regard to their gender, and both are called to exercise and develop those gifts, and both are called to be faithful managers of those gifts that have been freely given, given to them. Now, this passage, along with others that are found in Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Philippians, and Colossians, those help us conclude that spiritual authority comes from God, and it's not determined by our gender. This is really, really uncomfortable for me to preach about women in ministry. It's really, really uncomfortable for me to preach about this topic. Bud asked me to do it, and I was like, I don't know, really? But I'll tell you, one of the reasons that I didn't want to do it, and I haven't always been excited about preaching about women in ministry, is because I don't know that I was always an advocate. I don't know that I was an advocate for women in ministry. I tolerated it, but I didn't sense that I needed to speak up about it. And I have felt the most encouragement for support for women in ministry from my male colleagues and people that I was in, in and out of seminary with. That's when I wrestled with it a lot was in seminary. And they were the ones that would say, Lisa, you are a pastor. Lisa, you are gifted. You're our equal. Pastor Bud has been crucial for me in this season here, reminding me that I am a pastor too in this community. They were the ones who would advocate for me they, these were the ones who saw the value in my gifts and in my leadership 
And they were the ones that reminded me of my call to minister to all people. I'm not called just to minister to the kids that come up on the front stage and to some ladies that are in the neighborhood. No, I'm called to minister to all. My colleague, Dominique Gilliard, he's a covenant pastor in Oakland. And he wrote this really great article this past week. The Covenant Church has a blog, and it's on the covchurch.org link. And on that blog, in the article that he wrote on the blog this week, I again felt this encouragement and challenge to live into my call as a woman in ministry, even in the uncomfortable times. So I'm going to put the quote up here from Dominique. He says, We will begin to see how God is making all things new and moving us beyond these prohibitive limits on the lives of women, limits that God never intended to begin with. As ambassadors for reconciliation, we must confess that sexism is alive and it's well today, both inside and outside of the church. And while many have come to accept women in ministry— We need more advocates for it. In particular, we need more men who believe that women are gifted and called to all levels of leadership within the church. When Christ came, we saw that he violated social norms of sexism in the Bible. It was not acceptable for men to associate with women outside of the home. But we read the biblical stories of how Jesus were meeting women in different places. He met the women at the well, and he even pointed out to mocking men that a woman caught in adultery, that she was no more sinful than they were. They were the same level. Jesus was the one to accurately portray God's own heart and God's own love for women in a public way. Jesus is the one who broke down the assumed division of what culture thought was acceptable. And Jesus is the one who made all things new, all things just, all things welcoming. The Bible is filled with women in leadership positions in both the Old and in the New Testament. The author Ruth Haley Barton says that when a woman in the Bible was the right person for the job, whether this woman was leading in worship, prophesying, exhorting, saving a nation from genocide, or leading soldiers into battle, God didn't hesitate to use her. And the results were impressive. One of the most intimate views of hospitality we saw from Jesus was that he welcomed women into his inner circle of friends. And it was two women's who were some of the last to be standing at the bottom of the cross, looking at Jesus as he died. This past week, I read another article that was really encouraging of me in my faith that women were not only able to preach the good news of Christ. I didn't really recognize this until this week. Women were commanded by Jesus to preach the good news of Christ. Some of you are saying, what? (laughs) Question for you. After the resurrection... Who were the first two people that Jesus appeared to? It was Mary Magdalene, and it was the other Mary. And what did he say to them? He greeted them, and as they fell to worship him, he told them, go and tell everyone that I'm alive. This literally was the first sharing of the gospel message. 
And it was commissioned to women to be the ones to deliver the news, the good news. Women can be called and anointed and commissioned by God to serve and preach the word of God. Women in ministry is just one of so many forms of radical hospitality. So men, it's not saying that this message today was only for women. There are so many forms of radical hospitality. Hospitality that's uncomfortable, yet in your gut, you know you're called to do it because it brings honor to God. So just as I was surprised to hear, now I want to share with you. You. You are called and you are gifted. And the question is, how are you going to respond to God's call to show radical hospitality? I want you to think of this image of Mary again. Mary at the feet of Jesus. Her hair is literally dripping with oil because she just used it to wipe off Jesus' feet. She's on her knees. She's in the dust. And there's this silence that everyone is very aware of. She knows that others are looking at her with these eyes of, what did you just do? And maybe even disgust. And it's then that Mary gazes up into the eyes of Jesus. And in her heart, she says, this was worth it. This was worth it. Hospitality requires us to deny ourselves. It requires us to give up our comforts. It requires us to make the initiative. That means you have to act on it first. It requires us to come to Jesus and ask, how can we be used? And let me tell you that if you come to him and say that you're willing, he will make it so clear to you that what you are doing can be done and is being used to bring him glory and honor while loving others in your community and in your family. So I'm going to close with a reading of a passage from Romans 12 that's written from the message, um, the translation of the message. And this is where we are called to let our love be shown by our actions. This is what the message says. Love from the center of who you are and don't fake it. Run for dear life from evil. Hold on for dear life to the good. Be good friends who love deeply. Practice playing second fiddle. Don't burn out. Keep yourself fueled and aflamed. And be alert servants of the master, cheerfully expectant. Don't quit in hard times. Pray all the harder. Help the needy Christians. Be inventive with hospitality. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the example of Mary. The example of this woman who was willing to love you so radically in ways that are risky and didn't make sense. And, oh, Lord, we thank you for that example to get out of our comfort zones to show hospitality to you. But now we're supposed to show that hospitality to our community and our neighbors and our family. 
And Jesus, as we are in those uncomfortable times, I pray, Lord, that we would be willing to be used by you, that we would be willing, God, to be your servants, your Marys, to show this radical hospitality. Stir our hearts, Lord. And when we ask you to speak to us, Lord, we pray that we hear your voice. And, Lord, that we hear what you're trying to tell us. God, we thank you that you are a God who wants to be honored. We love you, Lord, so dearly. And we come to you, God, saying you are worthy. So here we are. Oh, Lord, we come. We're hungry for you. We need you, God. We love you, Lord. Amen.